Christmas season is fast approaching. You got 10% off any day. If you don't use any day and you think the microwave's a joke, this is a great Christmas present because I've given this as a gift to many people who thought it was a joke and are now advocates. I've turned them into real believers of the microwave. Any day is a great container, not just for the microwave, but for the oven and for just storing things in your cooler. Any day will change your game. I use it literally every day, all the day, all the time. I actually cook my friend, my son's chicken nuggets in the any day today. It's, it's a game changer. 10% off with code Dave, 20% off athletic brewing, the best non-alcoholic beverage around. I drink it all the time. Now that I'm back, I was on the road. I didn't have any. Now I'm here. I'm going to drink it all the time. Athletic Gift 20 is your code when you visit athleticbrewing.com. Athletic Gift 20. And Cometeer, something that I brought on the airplane with me, uh, and I didn't have any on the way back from my trip to Abu Dhabi. You can get $40 off Cometeer when you visit cometeer.com slash Chang. 15% off East Fork Pottery, another great Christmas present for code Friend of Dave. And 10% off all Momofuku goods with the code DOMO10. You may ask yourself, why am I giving a 10% off discount code when I'm seeing Momofuku goods at my local grocery stores, my Whole Foods, my Targets? Well, we don't have the entire product line available on retail. The entire product line is available at shop.momofuku.com. The entire array of soy sauces, tamares, vinegars, chocolate bars, different chili crunches from extra spicy to black truffle. And our air dry noodles, we have a lot of things in store for the new year. Very excited about this. And thank you all for the continued support. But if you want to get it delivered straight to your door with a 10% off discount code, visit shop.momofuku.com, DOMO10 as your code. And of course, visit us at Major Domo Media YouTube. We are growing. We're slowly putting content out there every week, sometimes bi-weekly. Anyway, let's get on to the show. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you, Yolotango, as always. We got a three things before the three things. So I was in Abu Dhabi for the F1 race, which, by the way, I think maybe Las Vegas F1 will get there. When I got to watch the race in Abu Dhabi, I was like, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. This is how it's supposed to be set up. And from what I've been told, it was the same way in Singapore for two to three years uh, until they figured out. I'm sure Las Vegas is going to get it. It's the first time, but uh, Abu Dhabi has been doing it for a decade plus. And it was like, it's pretty, pretty, pretty sick. <laughs> can't, can't lie. Pretty sick. Um, as great as it was in Las Vegas, this was another level. And again, before anybody gets me in trouble, it's the first year in Las Vegas. I guarantee you the next year is going to get a lot better, but pretty amazing. Can't lie. And the, that car, that car sound when it zooms by, here's the thing. I have a inflated sense of ego thinking that I can do anything. It is so powerful to see these cars drive by at 225, 30 miles per hour. At no point when they fly by do I think I could do this. There, there's no way I could do this. It's unbelievable. And we had a great time. Hugo did very well on his trip. We, we saw a lot of fish swimming in the seas and turtles, as discussed last podcast. But I did go to the Louvre. The Louvre was, uh, had, has a, like an annex in Abu Dhabi. I think the structure is more impressive than some of the art, but it'll make sense as to where I'm going for these three things before three things. I... Maybe because I was with my child and we're walking through and I'm reading things uh, on the inscription like I never, I, I mean, I've been to many museums before, but I don't know if I've ever looked at things with a, a child's eye before. Uh, it's something I always have to remind myself with the great Juan Marie Arzac of, uh, in San Sebastian always says is he always looks at life and food with a child's mind, a child's like 
child's perspective because it makes things look brand new. And I did that with my son. And I'm glad that I did because I came across one of the, the I would say, the central pieces at the Louvre. And maybe this is a central piece at other museums too, but I've never looked at things with a child's mind before. There was a bust of two heads and it was made 6,500 years ago in Jordan. And it doesn't look that, maybe I can send a photo. It doesn't look that stunning, you know, but it was still like better than what I could do out of rock, you know? And I got thinking 6,500 years ago, 6,500 years have passed. Now think about this. And I wasn't on any drugs because I would have gotten a lot of trouble if I was in Abu Dhabi, if I was on drugs. But imagine whatever you have done today, it might be a relic in a museum 6,500 years from now. In the year, almost 9,000. Think about that. Seriously, think about that. I know Yuna's laughing at me right now, but take time right now and think about whatever it is that you, in culture, right? Could be your iPhone or whatever. Some relic that somebody's going to look at almost 6,500 years in the future. Maybe it's in a museum. Maybe it's somewhere else. And they're going to look at it and they're going to think, oh, think about all the time that's going to pass between now and then. In the year, almost 9,000. It is fucking insane to think about. Like BCE starts like 25, like almost 2000 years ago, right? BC and AD, basically. I I had a hard time contemplating what would happen if humanity does not explode and like does mass extinction and we're all here. What the fuck are we going to think about? I mean, I think it's pretty amazing, you know, right? What's your, what's your over under on mass extinction? Like an ELE? Cause like, I think 6,500 years, like I'll take the under on that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think we're going to make it that far. I mean, think how far we've come in 6,500 years. I mean, just think about this. This phone, imagine if you showed this to somebody 6,500 years ago, they think you were some kind of God. And 6,500 years from now, if we don't kill ourselves, they're going to say like, that's like a block of wood. You know what I mean? It's hard to comprehend what's going to happen. You know, even like opening up a can of soda 605 years ago, you'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm a fucking demigod. I'm not the God, I'm a God. I can open up a can of water like magic. You know, I don't know. I I tend to think that we're going to figure something out. We'll probably be on some planet and you guys can laugh. Think about how ridiculous is anything I say that's super ridiculous about 6,500 years from now. You can't really laugh at because we have no fucking idea. It's pretty crazy. I, 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 I'm having a hard time comprehending what cultural artifacts would be looked at as in like reverence and all 6,500 years from now because nothing we give a shit about today, nothing we care about, nothing in our bank account, nothing that we think is actually beloved or cherished will actually even be here if we were still around. I mean, again, I don't know if we're going to be around, but if we are, it's just funny to think about how time will actually eradicate anything we give a fucking shit about. Now, there's not one person that will be thinking about what happened at the ringer, what happened at Major Dome Media, what what was delicious in the year 2023, what was the top five, top 50, most essential, most crunchy, most sexy fucking restaurant. No one's going to give a fucking shit. No one's going to fucking care about what team had an undefeated record. No one's going to care about the most receptions in a season. No one's going to care about the most assists. No one's going to care that you didn't go to this party. No one's going to give a fuck about you doing whatever the fuck. I just think it's a very humbling thing to think about. Yeah. So I've been really meditating on that quite a bit because, you know, 
I don't think, the funny thing is, is I don't think that if I t- told myself before walking walking into this museum that I'm going to try to look at things like Hugo, that I would even give a shit about this at all. And that's, fu- that's a funny thing how perspective works. Anyway, that's my 6,500 years ago meditation in a very nihilistic way. Nothing you do is going to fucking matter. <laughs> full, full stop. So enjoy it while you can. The second thing I wanted to think about a couple podcasts ago, whether it made it or not, I was talking about RPOs and spread offense, right? And Again, I live in a world of comparisons and analogies, mostly in the world of sports. And, you know, over the years, we've had some of the ringer hosts of the NBA, the NFL, talk about the advancements in analytics, whether it's the three-point shot or whether it's the spread offense, which is now some kind of RPO, run-pass option shotgun, and how that has changed football and basketball. And before those listeners are like, oh, I don't give a shit about this, just hold on. We have, If you care about this, you probably listen to this because you listen and you want some insight about food, we have incorporated this into restaurants all the time. So the equivalent of an RPO or a three-point shot, right, is like a no-reservation restaurant, order firing tickets when they come in. So like what you order comes out whenever the kitchen wants. I'd also say even from a kitchen end, it's from a construction of a kitchen, it's everyone works a 40-hour work week where you have a prep team and then a team that actually executes the food. That could also be just the lunch team and their dinner team. Another thing, these are all things that Malifuku's experimenting with. All of it. You know, it's, it's you know, the first time I worked, I saw a restaurant that was 40-hour work week was working for John George. I was like, wait, I was always under the mindset that like a cook does everything. But then we're now in a world where we have very regimented, this is what you do and this is what you cannot do. So this is your role and it's very, very like almost myopically defined because it works more effectively, right? Not everywhere, but it, it, it allows you to become specialized and it prevents you from, how should I say? By becoming specialized in one thing, it weirdly allows you to, it makes it easier to train somebody else to do, right? And that's going to make sense because let's say in the offense of the back in the day in the 80s and 90s when you had the West Coast offense or things like Joe Gibbs, you could actually stash quarterbacks on your roster for like five to six years before free agency because they could learn how to play a very complicated system. And what I mean by like a simple 40-hour work week where you have regimented, very organized sort of divisions within your kitchen, that sort of specialization makes it a lot more easy to someone uh, for someone new to comprehend and to do and to execute versus a very sort of uh, Byzantine, multifaceted kitchen. Or it's almost impossible to learn unless you're spending you know minimum 12 to 24 months there. No coffee, no dessert. That's something that we really messed around with a lot. The main reason is I didn't really drink coffee at the time and we didn't have a dessert program. And I felt that if we did specialize on that, two things would happen. One, I would have to spend time on hiring or training something that I wasn't proficient in myself. So that's extra labor. Two, I did the sort of quick back of the napkin math on coffee and dessert versus turning a table. And we were going to make way more income if we turned the table than waiting for a customer to sip and to have their cup of coffee. We would be happy to lose some, I would say, favorable customer service reviews by making sure that we turn the table, but the food had to had to be at a certain level. So they they would not mind not having coffee or mind not having dessert. But also like the economic return was great, great, much greater. Much like a three-point shot in basketball is much greater than a two-point shot. Like, I don't really give a fucking shit about coffee and dessert. That's like just scoring two points in the paint. Like, I want that corner three. And that corner three was just, you know, turning a whole table over. And I think that really, you see that to be the case in a lot of restaurants right now. Or another thing they could say is like, if you do take reservations and you do a more normal traditional approach, I think it's interesting. And this is something that I've learned a lot or 
as a point that I've learned from just my recent travel to focus on the to focus on the points in your menu where you have a high return on like the high return basically right so you need beverage sales in restaurants why bars always make money you know why bars make a lot of money maybe a restaurant might do high, higher top line revenue than a bar but the bar might net more in return because there's less labor that would involve because guess what i'm opening up a 25 year old bottle of scotch that all it took was maybe an experienced bartender opening up, measuring it correctly and putting it in for, you know, maybe it's $70 a shot. Whereas to do a $70 Dover sole, I need to procure the right Dover sole. I need to fillet it properly. I need to handle it properly. I need to make the right butter sauce. I need to write the, get the right herbs. I need to cook it properly. I need the server to bring it. There's probably like 20 steps to get it from raw to finished. And each of those steps need to be done properly, handled properly to get me to a $7 outcome. Right. So that's why it's a greater return for someone to sell beverage than it is food. So like restaurants that are focusing on selling more wine, which is why I think you're seeing a lot more wine bars in your cities, which is an ironic return from say the late nineties and early aughts. You're going to see a lot more wine bars because guess what? Opening a bottle of wine with a small you know, plate of hamon or sausage or some kind of snacky thing, which I love, it's much more economically advantageous for that a bottle of wine to be open than to do a full course tasting menu or, or all of this food. So again, whether you realize it or not, restaurants you eat at are embracing the same principles that sports are doing, which is giving them the advantage. The advantage is like, how do I make it easier? How do I make the most money off this, right? Because guess what? You may say, oh, I'm in a restaurant. We live in a fucking world where you need to make money, right? You have to, just like a team needs to score more points to fucking win. And it's all around us. So it got me thinking that we're doing this all the time. The RPO, the spread offense, the corner three, we live in that world, at least on the restaurants, whether you realize it or not. And the reason I bring this up is in Abu Dhabi, I was looking at some of the menus and asking myself like, like, wow, that, those beverage sales are crazy. I was learning some of the breakdowns and they were like, well, actually, it's not a good thing for them. I was like, why is that? Because there was a restaurant that was doing huge numbers, but it wasn't nearly as high in terms of the net. Net is what matters, folks, right? Because they said that there they have to import everything and import importing things is really high. You're going to make more money serving food. So interestingly enough, different rule change on a macro condition can change. So that's very similar to like a rule change. So all of a sudden, let's just say the NBA says, you know what? The corner three is not allowed anymore. You can only shoot it from other areas. Well, if you take that away, that's very similar to where now Abu Dhabi international rules. They say like there's different rules. Now the two point shot serving coffee and dessert is more important than opening a bottle of wine or serving a bottle of booze. I thought that was very fascinating. So it got me thinking about that. So like inevitably, it's the rules and the regulations that will determine ultimately how and what kind of restaurants get served to you. So that was my two cents. The last thing I want to do, three things. If you follow sort of gastronomy, you follow French cuisine, and the late great Tony Bourdain was a big fan of it. He even incorporated writing it in uh, Treme. You read about it in a lot of older classical French books. You read about it how... I think, uh, you know, the last meals of a lot of like French presidents, I think Mitterrand, apocryphal story of him wanting, I think, uh, ortolans. These are tiny, tiny birds. I've never had a tiny, tiny bird. I've read about them a lot. I've always wanted to cook them. Tiny, 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 tiny birds, like this big. It's a pain in the ass. I could imagine to pluck and to prepare. I had a lot of them in, in Abu Dhabi and they're, they're just going to say they're not for everybody because you're crunching through bones, but they're, they're really delicious. They're really, really delicious. I mean, I've eaten a whole quail before. Because I challenged someone to a bet they wouldn't eat the bones. This is like me not understanding that bones can be edible at a certain size. But I got to say, I don't think tiny birds will ever be in vogue in America, ever. But if you get a chance, for me at least, it really allowed me to relive some 
conversations I've had with Tony, conversations I've had with other chefs, some books that I read. So I don't know if it's technically delicious, delicious, because I think that it is, but it's funny that you get to try certain things for the first time. And it reminded me of the first time that I was able to eat foie gras. It was, it was something that I've never had, only read about as a younger person before I started cooking. And then I started to cook with it and to eat it. And the first time I had it, I was like, oh, this is it. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to experience that feeling again because I've been so jaded because I think I've tasted everything. I really have tasted almost, I won't say everything. Yeah, I think almost every vintage of wine I ever wanted to taste. Yeah, every kind of fish, every kind of meat. Yeah, I think I've tasted almost everything as, as fucking asinine and, as, and, and, and stupid as that sounds. The one thing that I really never tasted was a tiny, tiny, tiny bird. And I did it. And, and so it had more significance for me than, say, for most people. But more specifically, it, it, felt, it filled in a void for me of conversations and things that I've read. Will I want to put it on the menu? No. But for me, it's like I didn't think I'd ever have that feeling before uh, or again. And and maybe something will come across where I'm like, oh, I've always wanted to taste that and I never have. But now it feels like my life is um, going to be in pursuit of something else. I'm sure if I think of something, I'll be able to think of it. But the Ortolan type bird was the last one. Now, that's it. My life is over. Let's take a break. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new pure leaf blackberry iced tea that we have here at the Spotify studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a berry delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new pure leaf blackberry iced tea. Visit amazon.com slash pure leaf and enter 20 pure leaf. That's 20 pure leaf for 20% off your purchase of new pure leaf Blackberry iced tea. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a berry delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. All right, so these are the three things, uh, and then we'll get into the rest of the podcast. All right, so Dave, uh, there's a story I heard that might be apocryphal, that when prospective cooks would interview for a job with Alice Waters at Chez Panisse, uh, Waters and the cooks would be shelling fava beans. And she would evaluate how long it took for the candidate to start picking up some fava beans and shelling them themselves. And that would, she would consider that in, in her evaluation. So my question for you is, how about you? What were things, what are three things that you would look for in prospective cooks when you were hiring for your restaurant? Well, there's a lot of things I would look for. And I'll tell you a story I learned from the great Andre Soltner, uh, who was the chef at Lutece, one of the great chefs of our time. And he passed a few years ago. Lutece was like the be-all, end-all of restaurants in New York City for many years, and he wound up being the dean at the French Culinary Institute, which is now something else. I don't even know what the fuck it's called. But the big thing for Andre was making a French omelet. And first of all, when you make a French omelet, and that that's what they would do, you know, apocryphally speaking, not just, you know, at the French Laundry, not, excuse me, Chez Panisse making, shelling fava beans, but for many restaurants, and I know this was the case, you have to cook something, but for many, many years, it was the story that you'd make an omelet. Supposedly, the toques, the folds in your toque are all the different ways you know how to master an omelet. I don't even know if that's true, but making a French omelet is a specific omelet. It's not an American style. A French omelet is a specific kind of way, way making an omelet. It's usually three eggs in a black steel pan, not a, not a 
nonstick pan. And you, he was very meticulous. And I remember having a conversation about it. The way someone, a cook, would cut their butter into perfect small cubes. They would get all the mise en place ready. They would get the bowl. They would get the, the black steel pan. They would get the salt. They would get white pepper, not black pepper, right? A little bit of white pepper. Black pepper will make the egg you know, specked with black. Um, they'll have the whisk. They'll have a fork. They'll have the plate ready. They'll have the butter spread out into butter that you're going to add to the pan and a little bit of a knob of butter to sort of glisten the the cooked omelet with, right? And and like that whole process from cracking the egg into a bowl and then scraping out all... So for Andre, chef, there'd be a lot of ways he would be able to discover if a cook gave a shit. So again, if you cooked cracked open an egg and you just sort of cracked three eggs open in a bowl and scrambled it. He's like, that was a fail. What he was looking for was someone cracking the eggs open and then scraping out with their finger everything out of the egg into the bowl. That, for him, was paramount. That that cook was going to fucking be successful. Whether they got anything out of it or not, the mere act of, I'm going to try to get everything out of this egg humanly possible. For Andre, who was born out of World War II and scarcity mindset, like that kind of frugalness to him was so integral to being successful, giving a shit. And that would be it. And then you, you know, you cook it and you swirl it around and I'm not going to show how to make a French omelet. And then you make sure that the, it was Bavarus, the center of it needs to be sort of just undercooked enough where it feels like you put cheese in it, but it's not. And the way you tilt it over in the plate and then you glisten it, it's got to be the right shape. You have a towel ready, right? That's another part of your mise en place and you shape it into the oblong football and then you glisten it. It could be something as simple as you're now cutting your chives immediately. Or did you cut your chives beforehand? So all of these things Chef Soldner would look at to determine if this person knew what they were doing. For me, Sometimes we would actually incorporate the omelet. When I first worked at Cafe Balud, the job, I remember the reason why I took the job, besides being told I had to take the job for the people I worked for <laughs> before, because that was the only place I could get a job when I came back from Korea, I mean, Japan. Because that was the funny thing. Everyone was, the people I worked for were so uh, invested on my career that they were like, you have to work here, right? And I don't know if that's the case these days, but when I was doing my trail, I saw them doing, you know, poulet and vest, right? So that's chicken that's been stretched into a pig's bladder, that's been stuffed with truffles, that's been aerosed, and, you know, you're, you're put, putting hot water into it, and then it puffs into this balloon, and you have this perfectly poached chicken, you bring a table side, and you, you serve the chicken breast, then you come back, and you take the chicken dark meat off, and you serve a, you know, a... Um, chicken liver, truffle, frisee salad. When I saw that, I only read about it in books. I was like, I have to have that job. I was like mortified. They were like, make a meal, right? And I was also happy that that was the case because when you have to cook in a kitchen in front of everybody, you've never felt more naked before in your life, right? It is a very hard thing for anybody to do, even an experienced cook. So I don't give a shit what it is that you cook, but it tells a lot about you. Number one, if you're the kind of person that has to make a meal in front of the kitchen. If you're the cook that's trying to make a meal, whether it's one course, two course, three course, but if you choose something super, super fancy, I think that tells you a lot about you. Because more than often or not, you're not going to execute it well. I think it's more revealing if somebody chooses to make an omelet, right? Someone chooses to make a really simple chicken soup. It's all about executing things. And I think it tells you a lot about, it's not about the final dish. You can make the most amazing dish. But I think what is more revealing about somebody that's working at a restaurant is actually how they are cooking something, right? And that goes to shelling fava beans, right? Is the setup right? Are they are they double shelling something? Are they doing something with the, you know, the, the, the discarded fava bean 
husks? Are they do? You know what I mean? Like it has less to do about the final outcome because no one gives a shit about what you actually do because it tastes like shit. I would rather have someone that makes a, a dish that tastes like total bullshit, tastes horrible because we can teach her or him how to make something tasty, but I can't teach them to give a shit about doing it right or like caring about preparing everything the right way. So the things I look for, number one, is their organization. How organized are they? And it's not just about physical aspect. Do they have a notebook? Are they writing everything down? Are they meticulous? Are they methodical in their approach? Or are they just winging everything, right? Two, the thing I always look for even before anything. Number one thing really is, do they have sharp knives? That's, that's to me, it's like it. If they do have sharp knives, I would always ask like, how are your knife sharpening skills? And if anyone that says they're excellent, I always say like, they're probably not going to make it. The answer you're looking for is really the cup of the carpenter from Indiana Jones. It's like, they're they're good. They could get better, right? That's what you're looking for. Somebody that knows that no matter how good I am, there's somebody that's better. That is not just the case in the kitchen, but that's the fucking case in life, right? Anybody that says, I'm awesome, I would not want to hire them. I'm looking for someone that actually has super fucking sharp knives that says, like, I, I, I don't know if they're that good. That sense of self is so important in a kitchen. So that's the number one thing I'm looking for. More often than not, especially today, I'm sure chefs that are listening to this today be like, yeah, dude, I totally hear you, man. Most people don't even either have their own knives to their knives are fucking sharp. Or if they open their knife kit, you see Tetris and all this other crap in their knife kit that looks like crap. This is their fucking home. This is their fucking temple, right? If they don't own their own spoons. They don't own the equipment. They don't have everything ready to go. It's not a good sign that they're going to be successful. It doesn't mean that they won't be, but it's a sign that I'm looking for is, you know, I always said like sharpening your knives would be like showing up to a a corporate job interview in shorts and flip-flops and chewing gum. It's your one fucking thing you can do before you even show up to work, right? I don't give a shit how busy you are, that you took time before you showed up to make sure that the utensils that you were going to use were going to be properly ready. Like, it tells you volumes about somebody, right? It really does. So that's the number one thing. Number two I'm looking for, again, is the mise en place in the organization. And number three is, when I say about the give a shit meter, are they standing around? When they're standing around doing nothing, are they writing shit down in their notepad, Right? Are they observing things and writing shit down? And three, when they're not writing shit down, are they doing two things? Are they fucking helping clean up? Two, are they asking questions to how to help somebody? Those are the three things, right? If you're not taking notes, are you asking questions? And three, on that end, are you helping? Are you helping whoever you're watching do whatever they need to be better? So all three of those things, if you can find somebody to do that, I would earmark that person as being like, well, this person's going to be like Max Verstappen. They're going to fucking crush. It's very rare that you're going to find anyone to do all three. I'm just telling you the fucking truth. Very rare you'll find somebody walking in the kitchen doing all three. If you do, you will let the entire kitchen know like, dude, number one draft prospect. Let's hire this person right away. So if you're listening and you're like, how, how do I get recognized when a job interview? Come fucking prepared. Be ready to help and give a shit. Full stop. Let's take a break. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. 
Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Thanksgiving pie chart. What do we got, you know? All right, Dave, here we go. So listener Brandon S. sent us a photo of these three pies that he put out at Thanksgiving. I want you to see if you could tell. So he sent us two photos. He sent us one before and two, the aftermath. One was a Dutch apple pie. One was the pumpkin pie or spice gourd pie. And the third one was key lime pie. Can you rank... Which one was most consumed from first to third? And try to guess. I have no question, Brandon, that key lime pie was last, apple pie was two, and spice gourd pie was number one. And, you know, I think too, without even asking if that was correct or not, I know I'm correct. I would say change takes time. There was, there was a long time, at least in America, where people didn't want people of skin color incorporated. No? Wrong? I'm wrong? I'm dead wrong? All right, what is it? Dave, you'll be pleasantly surprised to know that key lime pie was a runaway first place. I'm so I'm so traumatized. <laughs> Dutch apple pie was second, as you predicted. And pumpkin pie was like, there's like a slice out of here. Like, I don't know if I believe Brandon. I think Brandon just wanted to get airtime today. Where's the photo? Is the photo real? The photo is real. He uh, said too. Is that what's the timestamp on these? He did not send them metadata so I could so verify. I, I don't know if I believe Brandon. Yeah, this could have been from a like Yeah. I think Brandon photo. just wanted to get airtime, Brandon. I, I don't know if I believe you. I have a hard time believing any family would actually choose key lime pie because it's so revolutionary. It's so truthful. Very few people do, I believe. Very few families will ever do the right thing here. So I don't know if I can believe that. Do you believe it to be true, guys? Dave, it looks pretty pretty verified. Like, I'm going to pop no, this I need timestamp. <laughs> I mean, they look exactly me, the you're same. You're telling me freaking Oswald one-shot book suppository. I, 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 I don't know if this is true. <laughs> I mean, it looks pretty convincing. Victoria, what do you think? Yeah, I'm looking at it. I don't believe it by the before picture, but the after picture, I mean, the key lime pie is gone. It's gone. I mean, he could have just dumped it out himself and then taken a photo. And then you say it's verified. I, I Listen, I need a world where I need objective proof. It's it's happening, Dave. It's happening. No, Brandon, I want to believe you. But if you gave us time-lapse video, I would believe you. I would say thank you. <laughs> time-lapse video. But if it wasn't time-lapse video, you could do that. You could do that on your phone. You didn't do that. So next year, Brandon, try harder. You, Brandon, this is an example of Andre Soltner saying, hey, you made a beautiful omelet, but guess what? You didn't take all the album out of the eggs. You didn't scrape it all out. So next time. You didn't take a man's phone away from him on Thanksgiving. Like, what is wrong with you? Listen, man, this soft fucking bullshit. I'm not giving a fucking winning trophy when they should be getting a consolation prize. Good try trying. Try next year. Try harder. It's not that I don't want it to believe it to be true, but I don't believe it. I, I believe America is soft in the soft in the head with spiced gourd pie. I appreciate you not taking the easy victory. Yep. Never. Never. All right, let's take a break. All right, you know, we got an ask Dave. What do we got? All right, so this person, uh, is, this is David from Canberra, Australia. Hi, Dave. As we all do run into the Christmas season, I'm turning my mind to Christmas meal planning. My thing this year is to mix it up and do a momofuku bosam as a centerpiece. I think it's delicious, festive, and a fun way to celebrate. Fortunately, the rest of the attendees are down with this. What I'm keen to know is what you'd add to it to make a Christmas spread. As much as I want Dave Arnold stuffing in a bowl of pigs and blankets, I'm not convinced they'll pair with the delicious bosam. Grateful for your thoughts. Well, here's interesting. Thanks for that, David, from Canberra, Australia. I have been to Canberra before. Um, I... You know, when, when, when we had the restaurant in Australia, I, when we were making caramels from the pork fat, I thought I had taken bosom and pork butts 
to the nth degree. There was nowhere else to go. Whenever I see people making bosom, not that I don't think they should, or if they're buying it from Momofugo, it's great. But if you've made a lot of bosom before to the point where it's now part of your meal, your holiday meals, I'm going to offer you one suggestion to not cook it the way that it's suggested anymore. I don't. Number one is I, I, I want to slice my pork butt. The bosom that I think is most loved is to pull it apart. I'm not saying that's delicious, but for me, I've cooked honestly hundreds of thousands at this point. I want to take it to a point where you're able to slice it thinly. So it's more of like a traditional bosam with pork belly, a, a samgyeopsal, right? The por- boiled pork belly where you slice, that's the texture that I want. I don't know if what I said makes any sense, but I want to slice it. And it's, I think, a more difficult point to hit. And I've never done it with a thermometer, so I can't tell you. It's always by feel where you're slicing it and it's just soft enough where you can cut through no problem and just soft enough where it 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 has that texture of a long cooked sous vide meat, right? Where it melts, but there's still enough tendon, I mean, still enough sinew where it holds together and then melts apart. So that's what I think. And if you don't do it in a sugar brown sugar marinade, you could cook that with sage, rosemary. And you could do a, a salt crust, right? You could do a lot of traditional herbs that might go with the things, uh, a Christmas flavor. And I'm thinking about rosemary, thyme, sage, some of those things that pair really well with pork. And then I think you could serve it in a traditional way with traditional sides. That's my first take. And I cook pork like that all the time, especially if I'm going to smoke it. Uh, another thing is if you're going to smoke it, I would probably say like two and a half hours in, I'd wrap it pretty early in, in paper or aluminum because you don't want something overly smoky. You really don't. And something that I learned from APL a while back, Adam Perry Lang, he's like, I don't really want smoke. I just want enough of it to like anything that's too smoky. It's not something I desire anymore. So that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is you could still cook it, pull apart. I would just cut back on the sugar, right? And you can still have everything. And I think having stuffing next to kimchi and next to oysters and next to lettuce is totally fine. The only thing that's making it weird in your mind is your 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 own sense of like what is right, right? Just remember at one point, everything that became something normal on your plate of Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever holiday would have been weird in its modern incarnation. So if you just sort of remove that, everything is going to make sense. So don't matter. Like, we have that at our Thanksgiving. There's things that make no sense whatsoever. You have kimchi next to cranberry stuffing, next to oysters, and it all makes sense. So on one end, you can actually tailor it towards a more traditional sort of Anglo-Saxon Christmas meal. On the other hand, you could just go full blast. I don't give a fuck. And they're both going to be delicious. All right, let's take a break. All right, you know, what do we got? What's on YouTube? Yeah, so you've been spending a lot of time traveling. And uh, a lot of this was kind of by yourself. So have you been spending time on the YouTube? What have you been watching on the YouTube? I mean, I have. And YouTube TV is fucking unbelievable. Oh, my God. I'm not getting paid by YouTube to say this. YouTube TV, cut your fucking cord. I didn't realize everyone in my life had been already subscribing to YouTube TV. But my God, it's like such a game changer. You know, Maybe you pay the same amount after you, you got to still, clearly, this is something I've had to explain to people. When you cut your cable, you still need your cable internet service. Think that if you don't understand that, then we can't be friends. You have to still ensure that you have Wi-Fi, however it may be, in order to cut your cord. But you still might, and I found this to be true when I've had this conversation because I've been the unpaid spokesperson for YouTube TV. People might say, well, it costs the same as before. I'm like, yeah. It's so much better, okay? It's so much better. 
It's recording things. It's got an algorithm that is like recording things you may or may not like, but you have more. It, the U, UX is so much better on navigating TV than just scrolling through fucking cable. So that's my two cents. If you haven't joined YouTube TV, you should do so. It's amazing. And if you're traveling internationally, the if you use a VPN, you can like really hack all that shit. Not everything, but it, it's, it's good enough. Anyway, I am a YouTube. I watch a lot of YouTube, not just TV, regular YouTube. And I'm going to just show you what I downloaded then. What, what have I watched? This is going to surprise you. We should probably do this more often. Uh, besides Hudson's Playground. Hudson's Playground is what my son currently loves. And it's basically uh, a dude and his son making up shit on a farm they live on. So here's something. This is going to be funny. I have a lot of F1 video stuff because I wanted to learn a little bit more. Lots of F1, including Young Max Verstappen. But here's something that I, I have definitely watched for the first time and uh, might be funny to some people. I finally watched Squid Game. I finally watched Squid Game because I was watching the Squid Game, the, the, the real life series. It didn't make that much sense to me. You could watch it without it. But I was like, you know what? I'd probably enjoy this more if I watched Squid Game. And I only watched the first and last episode, which made no sense to me. So I could just know what happened. Hey, it's really good. <laughs> Squid Game is really good. So... What I've been watching is uh, heavy spoilers, screen cush, and new rock stars, all of their analysis on Squid Game. I have, let's see here. What else do I have here? I have a lot of Meat Eater, other YouTube videos. I have, what else? Fish 13. Fish 13 is the, this Korean guy that decks out his car and he goes camping. And I feel like one of his original fans, because I saw him in the pandemic, he had like 6,000. Now he has like 800,000 people. Fish 13 is very relaxing and funny to me. I also have a lot of camp, another camping video, uh, Attic Family, A-T-I-K Family, another camping video. I also have Tiny House, Giant Journey. <laughs> I have Mark Rober. And I have a lot of Blackpink videos and their in unique vlogs because Hugo's a huge fan of Rosie, Rose, he loves her. So do I. And uh, that's about it. That's a lot of that. My God. A lot of black pink, I've got to, got to say. Yeah, that's about it. Is it too late for me to try to become the manager to black pink? Yeah, I think you're a little late, but they are a lot of fun and they are in your area. You know, black, black pink, pink in your area. Black pink is in your area. Um, no, I, I, I'm wondering when am I going to get sick of them? It's got to happen soon. It's got to happen soon. I'm not going to lie. I still watch the ice cream video every now and then. Just a, it's just, a, it's a vibe. I don't know. I, I'm hoping to get sick of them soon. They're timeless, Dave. They're timeless. Their hooks are in. All right. Let's take a break. All right, guys, we got a moif. What do we got here? All right, Dave, we're going to kick it off with something sports related. I know we talked a little bit about sports, but which sport has the best game winning play? And honestly, like, which would you like to accomplish? And I have here, like, a list of football walk-off touchdown in the Super Bowl, game-winning shot in Game 7 of the NBA Finals, walk-off home run in the World Series, game-winning goal in the Stanley Cup. So which one do you think is the best one to accomplish? I still think the greatest one of the... Listen, I, I feel like I've watched the greatest sporting event of all time, which was the Iron Bowl pick six, which seemed impossible. But that's such a rarity that I don't put it that in consideration. What I also, Super Bowl touchdowns, like we've seen a lot of those comebacks. So for me, the best game-winning play is the play that you rarely see, right? And it's almost where people, the, the term walk-off has been used so much that it's been watered down. Walk-off touchdown, walk-off score, walk-off whatever. I think the greatest play is a sport that I really don't give a shit about, and that's the walk-off home run in 
extra innings. There's nothing like it because you never, you don't see it. You, you don't expect it. And of all the greatest things, I remember being alive watching Kirk Gibson uh, coming out of the bench on the bum leg and hitting that home run for the Dodgers. Was it against the A's? Yes, it was against Dennis Eckersley. Yeah. Yeah. Who, Dennis Eckersley at the time, the fabulous mustache was like the greatest closer of his generation. And I remember watching that being like, how's he, how's he going to do that? And he does it and he limps around and you know, it was absolutely phenomenal to watch. And anytime you see a home run in those pressurized situations, to me is the greatest game winning play because nothing comes after it. Nothing, it's over, right? And there have been others, like Larry Mize knocking it out, uh, a chip in against Greg Norman in 1986. I can remember Michael Jordan's last shot, but it wasn't sort of the last shot, right? In basketball, you see those last game-winning shots all the time. Like Dame's three-point shot when he was like 60 feet out against the Oklahoma City like four years ago was amazing. But you, it becomes so regular that it's not amazing to you. I think watching baseball walk-off home runs, and I don't give a fuck about baseball, is like the most amazing thing. So, there. Thank you for finally admitting that baseball has one major redeeming quality. All right. Fuck, marry, kill. And by the way, can we get players back on steroids? <laughs> I just want to go, as if I'm the game czar, I, I was a little pissed off again that Bill Simmons had Malcolm Gladwell theor- theoretically have their special, like, Malcolm Gladwell was the gaming czar of America. What would you do? I was like, honestly, fuck Malcolm Gladwell's video <laughs> on this. Get me. Number one thing I would do is like, if you play professional sports, you have to be on steroids and game altering substances. Yes. No. Yes. No. All baseball players. You know how awesome? Listen, baseball was unreal when everyone was juiced up. I care about it was their so good. Health. Victoria, am I right? Also thinking about the track stars that get busted. Yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> fuck <laughs> yeah. I want to see like sub minute and a half fucking marathons. I want to see a 20 foot long jump. They should never have taken Ben Johnson's fucking Olympic medal away. That dude could have broken nine seconds on the 100 yard dash, 100 meter dash. Brady Anderson, who literally looks like a fucking probably 130 pounds dripping wet. All on fucking steroids. Jack like 58 home runs. I want to see that shit. What's wrong with you? I want to see that shit. Oh, no. When I covered the Olympics for NBC and I saw that the Confederation of Russian States, that team that won silver medalists, they were on steroids. I was like, yeah. (laughs) Everybody's already, it seems like everybody's already juiced up anyway. But when we do, we have a sampling size. Baseball in the late 90s was, the ratings were through the roof. Home runs galore. Pitchers were on it. I gave a shit about baseball back then. I want to see people that cannot fit into the fucking jersey. <laughs> Jose Canseco was the best thing ever for baseball. <laughs> Dude, I was going to give Mark McGuire. He's fucking lots of ears. <laughs> that, dude, that dude hit such hard balls that didn't even have a high trajectory. They were like line drive home runs because the stadium was in the way of the trajectory. Okay? You're telling me that's not fucking unbelievable? Shit. You want to see baseball, me being a big fan, get make sure that it's a prerequisite that you're on HGH, steroids, and everything else. The Dave Chang Show does not endorse the use of steroids in any way, shape, or form. Uh, all I'm just saying, was it more enjoyable in the 90s? And can I also say, bring back chewing tobacco. Oh, we're at it. Let's bring back chewing tobacco. That didn't go anywhere, I don't think, but uh, yeah. Bring back chewing tobacco. I just, it didn't make any sense. It looked gross, but it, you know, it just made it seem like it was the right thing to do. And can I say another thing while we're at it? Let's bring back the fucking goons in the NHL. I can't, (laughs) come on, man. I mean, they took away 
what was honestly the most nonsensical part of any sport. <laughs> that if one team's player, star player got potentially hurt, they would send out a giant six foot eight monster who could barely skate. And their only job was to pummel the other team's player. I mean, I mean, it's crazy. It was crazy. It was literally a bouncer. What other sport can employ someone that can barely skate, barely shoot? Their only job was to punch another player in the face. I'm not, in, I'm not endorsing violence, right? But it's a full context sport anyway. It just was like, what? This is so crazy. They're employing two to three enforcers. Their job is enforcer, right? I'd also say basketball was better when you had enforcers. Just saying, Adam Silver. Adam Silver's kicked out the enforcer. We need Charles Oakley's. We need an Anthony Mason. We need a Charles, we need a Xavier McDaniel. We need the NBA goons back. The Dave Chang Show does not endorse the use of steroids or retaliatory violence in organized sports. You're telling me that the game wouldn't be better with like that hard foul, like, Keep doing these disclaimers, and you just keep rolling with them. And I'm Victoria, just... would you would you approve of having the enforcer back in the NBA? Come on, mm, I'm. I kind of feel like there's still some in the NBA, not as bad as before. But I'm like, how far off are we from some that are like in the Bill right Lambeer? An enforcer? That's just a dick, dude. But Pistons won. <laughs> yeah, because they were. Everybody was scared to go into the hoop. Like. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Sorry. All right, all right. Okay. Let's get back on. To our listeners, I apologize. We had to cut a good chunk of that last bit out. Because I was making fun of a certain player that, yeah. that can't punch well. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Player not to be named. All right. Fuck, Mary kill, Dave. And we're going to do noodle soups, but some ones that are kind of off the radar for folks. Vietnamese bun bao hoi or bun ba, Thai boat noodles and Taiwanese nuro mien. Okay. The reason I'm not going... Bun Bu Hue is it's got blood in it. Oftentimes it's got blood in it. I'm not, again, like, I, I don't like blood in my food unless it's a steak, right? I don't want blood sausage. I don't want blood. No, it's out. Uh, I think it really goes to Taiwanese beef noodle soup and Thai boot noodles. And I, Well, boat noodles have blood in them too, Dave. It's just like masked with a bunch of different spices. And, and I'm getting rid of, I didn't, I'm going to boat noodles too. Really? I'm going to beef noodle soup all the way then. I understand blood can be part of beef, whatever, but I don't want blood actually added to my soup. That's not for me. And there's a famous soup in when I was in Kuala Lumpur where it's blood. I think it's the same thing. I'm like, no, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want blood in my soup. Is that so weird? No, it's, it's... I want mine. I want mine clean. So you're a clear broth guy. Cause I'm a clear I, broth I, guy, I, which yeah, is why I'm, I'm not a fan of the EDM of ramen. Tonkatsu. Oh my I mean, you can take your Diplo bullshit somewhere else. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. All right. I'll take it on the chin. All right. Okay. Over, we're just going to do a quick overrated, underrated winter edition. Fireplaces, Dave. Overrated, underrated. Underrated. Underrated for sure. Yeah. But all kinds of old school fireplaces are great. Even ones that are fire stoves are fantastic. Uh, some of the ones, I feel like the Nordic countries do fireplaces the best. American fireplaces are garbage. I would also say New England has really cool fireplaces. Wait, so what's the difference? There's a restaurant in Salem, Massachusetts that one of my friends, well, I was friends with him freshman year of college, his family owned. And it was so old school that they had it like on string. It was a giant fireplace. And, you know, roasting meats in front of the fireplace type of stuff is amazing. Yeah. I'm a big fan of fireplaces. 
Gas fireplaces, I'd rather put an LED screen of fucking fire. Fair play, fair play. Okay, scarves, overrated, underrated. Big fan of scarves. Big fan of scarves. My only problem is I don't know what I lose more, pens or scarves. <laughs> For those two to be in the same category is a little bewildering, Dave. Like, <laughs> I lose scarves like I lose hats. It doesn't matter. That's insane. Yeah. All right. Hot chocolate, overrated, underrated? Underrated. And let me just go for the record. Anything that's a chocolate beverage, underrated. You know what I drink a lot? Chocolate milk. Chocolate milk is so good. (laughs) I mean, I drink my son's chocolate milk all the time because it's delicious. Next time you want something sweet, go give yourself a cold glass of chocolate milk and come back to me and tell me that wasn't the most refreshing, most delicious things. The fact that it's not dessert, it's dessert in a cup. It's awesome. All right. Throw blankets on the couch. Overrated, underrated. I don't, I mean, throw blankets are to me very similar to throw pillows. I don't understand them. I want like a real fucking blanket. Yeah. Like I want a comforter on the couch. That's what you want. Like I mean, the reality is this. If you're going to stay at home and watch TV do you want a throw blanket or do you want a fucking down comforter? One's a little bulky, but like... Like, I don't give a fuck how, what I look like. I am I look like garbage if I'm staying at home watching TV. I don't need to look nice. I want a down comforter. All right. Uh, ice skating. Overrated, underrated. Speed skating. Underrated. Korean speed skating. Underrated. Because we are genetically designed to be great at speed skating. You know, it's slow twitch muscles. Short thighs and ankles, short thighs and calves. We're we're perfectly designed for speed skating. Nobody else can. We're, we we just are the best. Regular skating, not so good. I'm saying, I don't speed skate. I don't ice skate. If you happen to be good at those things at an Olympic level, then yes, underrated. But for everybody else, which is like 99.9% of the world, you shouldn't ice skate because you look like shit. Or a hockey player. And basically, ice skating is underrated if you're awesome at it and overrated if you're not good at it. Fair enough. Hot tubs, overrated, underrated. Overrated if they don't, you need to have bubbles and heat. So hot tubs to me, when people relax in it, it's not hot enough. It doesn't have enough pressure. A proper hot tub is something where the pre- the bubbles that are shooting out like are like, mm, it hurts. And the heat has to be something like, if you're spending more than 25 minutes, you might actually cook yourself. That's how the temperature should be. So those are underrated. Everything else where you can like drink a, like a, you know, snow falling on cedars bullshit and you're having like a cup of fucking like wine or a beverage and you're like talking to your friends. That's not a hot tub. That's just the hot pool. Oh God. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? In Asia, there are hot tubs that are, it's got to be one or uh, or other. It's like bubble, like the pressure is so intense or it's so hot that you're like, oh my God, that hurts. And you know what I'm talking about. They it's have got- it at the Jim in the Korean uh, in the Korean bathhouses. So yeah. that's a hot tub. Everything else is just a warm pool. Okay, hardcore hot tub. And then finally, popcorn tins, overrated, underrated. Well, we've had this conversation before with Noel and Chris, and they're fans of the butter bullshit or the caramel bull stuff. Or, I think it's I think it's cheese butter. It's fuck Mary kill. It's Mary butter. Fuck cheese. Kill caramel. I know I know people disagree, but it's okay to be wrong. Okay. And on that note, give us five stars. Subscribe to our Major Dummy Media YouTube channel. And uh, remember, steroids are not cool. (laughs) Unless they're in pro sports.